0: Barreds. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family, Father, in a unity that you ordained from eternity past for this group of individuals, individual believers, hopefully Father and your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the very fullness of grace and truth and who is our prototype for all time. We know that we can go to the Word in confidence, Father, in the throne of grace, boldly based on these truths alone. Father, we're so very grateful for your patience, your mercy, your grace, and most of all, your love for us. We just want to remain here steadfast at North Christian Church as ministers of reconciliation, as administrators of the gospel itself, Father, as lights on a hill, Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this morning as members of this church. And we pray also for those that are still lost in this world, that we might be given an opportunity to evangelize them. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make a a morning like this even a reality Father, we just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, Part 10 of Undistracted Devotion to the Lord. A fantastic series that we've been on. Hopefully you've been uh, following along. If you haven't been able to make it here uh, during the week. uh, And I do apologize again on behalf of the staff Um, for that glitch on Thursday evening. The last 20 minutes was out. There's nothing you can do sometimes. Sometimes it's the internet. We just don't know. Um, But in any case, this past week, the Spirit focused our attention on the main ingredient to undistracted devotion to the Lord, which is love. It's always love. Um, We read the account of Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice his only son whom he loved. And we got that from Genesis 22, verse 2. His willingness to sacrifice his only son whom he loved. Well, firstly, theologically, we call this a type of our Father in heaven. That's what our Father in heaven did. Sacrificed his only begotten son. And Isaac being the type or a type of Christ uh, being the sacrificial lamb, so to speak. But I was thinking about that. Here's what we know about that scenario. And you might say, but that was way Old Testament. And it's true. Ancient news. And it's true. Go to John 3.16. Do You know what? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And whenever you try to bring the Old Testament and the New Testament together, you cannot divorce them. I hate when that happens, when I hear people speak as if the Old Testament and the New Testament were completely different, disjoint even, and they think about things differently, and that's a huge error, huge error. Are there things called dispensations? Are there times and eras of the Bible that have certain contexts around them? Absolutely. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means his heart was the same then as it is uh, in the New Testament as it is even today. So when we read John 3.16, you should think about the account of Abraham. You should think about the types that were in play, even in the Old Testament account of Abraham and Isaac. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. That sounds like Abraham, willing to sacrifice his son. God so loved, and there's love, the very pinnacle or the motivation, even for our lessons, undistracted devotion. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Again, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. When we read what is arguably the most recognizable Bible passage, we ought to focus on what actually motivated our Father. What actually motivated our Father? Well, we see it right there, for God so loved the world. But let's sort of span across uh, the account with Abraham and Isaac because likewise with any type of the Father or the Son, uh, what actually motivated Abraham to sacrifice his only son, was love. So in Genesis 22, 2, it is established that Abraham did love his only son, Isaac, but he loved God more. In verse 7, he informs Isaac of his faith that God will provide for himself. In Genesis 22, after Abraham's faith was put on full display for the Theatron, for all the angels to see, even. As we know, God stops the goings-on and provides a lamb instead. Now, this was our launching pad for Thursday's message. Go to Genesis 22.16. Genesis 22.16. So, we got through that uh, passage and we ended up here with verse 16 of Genesis chapter 22 so we'll pick up where we left off there and review a little bit and then carry on Genesis 22:16 16 says and said by myself I have sworn declares the Lord because because that's a big word because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. So we have a setup here, up here in the board. We have a a framework being established in scripture, a literary one. Quote, because you have done this thing, what do we see then? The Lord reveals a cause-effect relationship between loving him more than our greatest loved ones even, as was the case with uh, Abraham and Isaac, excuse me, and blessings. And so he puts a relationship on the table, a cause-effect relationship between loving him more than our greatest loved ones and resultant blessings. So, as we pondered on Thursday evening up here on the board, we have to ask ourselves, in our quietest moments of reflection, do we love others more than we love the Lord? That is a very big question, and as I said on Thursday, it begins with you. Do you love the person in the mirror more than you love the Lord? Do you love someone else in your life more than you love the Lord? Because if either one of those things are true, then you don't get the blessings. Because there's a cause-effect relationship. So we shouldn't be afraid of analyzing our deeds even. Because, you know, we like to give a little lip service here and there. We like to say we love God. We like to say we love the Lord more than anyone else. But the reality is we spend more time in the mirror admiring ourselves than we do in the book admiring Him. And so the proof is in the pudding. How much time do you spend prettying yourself up as opposed to reading the Bible? How much time do you spend primping yourself for your so-called difficult days when you don't even read the Bible? For five minutes? So we shouldn't be afraid of analyzing our deeds. Compare that to Revelation 2:3, where the Lord says, I know your deeds five times. That's a lot. And he mentions your deeds, I think, eight times in just two chapters. So this is the analysis, if you would, of the seven churches. And he says, I know your deeds five times. And he mentions your deeds eight times. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize that when he's looking at these churches, he's looking at their deeds. Just like us. Thousands of years later, he's looking at North Christian Church. And if he was here, if he wrote about us, he'd say, I know your deeds. And what would he say? What would he say? Would he say what he said to Ephesus? You lost your first love. What would he say? Repent, or else I remove the lampstand? What would he say to this corporate body that was designed specifically to bring glory to God. Not to feed you donuts and quiche. To bring glory to God. What would he say? I have my own ideas about that. <clears throat> but I think if I shared all of it, it would probably make some of you stumble. <clears throat> so it's not necessary. And he's not giving me the unction, if he would, to do it. You have to decide for yourself why are you here this morning. What do you think of North Christian Church? Are you here for the right reasons? Are you here out of habit or are you here out of love? And I mean love for the Lord, not love for family, not just because other members of your family are here or people you love personally are here, but are you here for Him? That's the key. Because the Lord says, I know your deeds. So we have to ask ourselves do we love others more than we love the Lord? Paul wrote about this same topic up here on the board. Romans 2, verse 6. God will render to each person according to his deeds. And that includes believers. According to his deeds. Again, verse 16. You're still in Genesis 22, right? Okay, verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Again, up here on the board, <clears throat> because you have done this thing, the Lord reveals a cause-effect relationship between loving Him more than our greatest loved ones and resultant blessings. Now, here's where we get to the dash-effect part. Cause, because, and then the effect. Verse 17, He says, Indeed, because. That's the cause. Because, right? Cause being in place. Indeed. I will greatly bless you. Note, these blessings span beyond just Abraham's progeny, just beyond, they don't just include his descendants. We often think about the descendant aspect, which is what he says specifically uh, next. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, again, there's a because there, because you have what? What's that key word? Obeyed. Obeyed because you have obeyed my voice cause effect because you get the effect which is blessings. So here's the principle set before us up here on the board. Conditional blessings. The fact that the Bible never skirts the issue of cause-effect when it comes to conditional blessings is something we must take the time to understand wholly. Don't just be, you know, oh, I'm so convicted. Yeah, you know, I, I, this or that in my life, and I'm just so convicted. Don't just do that thing. That's pure laziness. The fact that the Bible, this is the Holy Bible, there's only one. The Holy Bible never skirts the issues of cause and effect when it comes to conditional blessings. So we have to take the time to understand what that means, holy. And that means in our own lives. So concentrate. I was thinking about this. This might help. Since our God is a God of perfect integrity, which means the sword cuts just as cleanly in both directions, whether blessings or curses, nonetheless, I think we we tend to think only in terms of blessings. Well, if I do this, then I'll get blessed. There's always some kind of ulterior motive, almost. Well, if I do this... And you start getting thinking religiously, if I do this, then this will happen. But God sees the heart. So if the fruit's bad fruit because the heart was bad, then you still don't get it. The idea is to fall in love with the Lord. And through love you bear fruit. And when that happens, you get blessed. So you have to go all the way back to the root system, which is why religious people never get blessed, not really. A little bug, it's about this big. Right. So don't do that either. So since our God is a God of perfect integrity, the sword cuts in both directions, just as cleanly. Blessings or curses. But we tend to get on a treadmill with only blessings in view. But you know what? The Bible teaches us that our God is a jealous God. And if love is the thing he's after then we have something real to think about. Our God is a jealous God who just as surely responds to failed conditions. In other words, if you fail the the if, if if the because is actually a response to something bad, if the if statement is not there, there's a flip side. Because our God is a jealous God. Don't believe me? What's this say on the board? Exodus 20, verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Yeah, we have a jealous God. He loves us in a measure that we can't understand even. So when we reject Him, at any level, even as believers. He has a problem with it. And if we play that little game, like I was describing earlier, where you don't really love him, you just play the religious game, he sees right through it. But the doctrine is very simple up here on the board. We're not going to spend too much time on that. Just a friendly reminder. Romans 12, 19, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. And so that sword cuts in both directions just as cleanly. And he has no problem with it. Do you understand? If he has to cut through something, if he has to cut something down and throw it in the fire, he does. He has no problem with that. Because, see, he's holy. And I think we forget that our God is holy That means He's perfectly righteous. There's no room for our shenanigans. There's no room for it. Nor does He want to make room for it. So, in a perfectly divine way, if we think about this even further, in a perfectly divine way, God is, and I put quotations on here because it's hard for mankind to understand this, but God is pleased to bless or curse in order to maintain His holiness. Pleased. Either way, whatever maintains His holiness, He does. And He's pleased to do it. You know, He wanted everybody that's saved in here, He predestined you for that. He wanted you in heaven with Him for all of eternity. What did He have to do? What was He pleased to do? Go to Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah fifty three ten. You see, he had to maintain his holiness. He can't take a bunch of unclean individuals into heaven for all of eternity. You see, and so he was pleased to cut his own son down. Do you think he's not pleased to cut you down? to get you off your high horse, to get, off, get you off of your mocking ways. Never test the holy God of the universe because he's protecting something you can't even fathom, something you've never experienced wholly, uh, holy, W-H, which is holiness, H-O. Isaiah 53.10, what was, he, what was he pleased to do? But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Sounds like a paradox almost. The father was pleased to crush the son? Yes, why? To maintain and preserve his holiness for all of eternity. He wanted you with him. That's his desire. He said, i got to do something. And I'm pleased to do it. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, as an if statement isn't there, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So the Lord God was pleased to place the curse of mankind on the, soldier, on the shoulders of his only begotten Son. Pleased to place your curse on his only Son. Again, it seems like yet another paradox, but this is precisely how God operates. It's never about what we think is appropriate, or even right or wrong. That always drives me kind of bananas. I don't know about you all. People have their own sort of um, ideas about what's right and wrong. And if you really investigate, um, it's usually just something they want. So they establish their um, fleshly morality to meet an end goal. Yeah, people are that smart. They're at least that smart. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, the Living Bible. This plan of mine is not what you would work out. Neither are my thoughts the same as yours. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than yours. This plan of mine is not what you would work out. That's for me personally, that's been one of the hardest lessons in life because I'm a planner. I'm a solution maker. I'm an architect. That's my personality type is actually dubbed the architect. It's my personality. And it's not good in many ways. Because I try to architect solutions all the time. And God's like, your plans, they they really stink compared to mine. And some of us have a little, all of us have a little architect in us. Anyway, again, it's never about what we think is appropriate or even right or wrong. It's about what God decides and subsequently What he provides that counts. It's about what he decides and then subsequently what he provides that counts. One thing we do know about God is that he wants us to experience his love firsthand. Think back cause and effect. Cause, because you get blessed. What's the great blessing? What's the greatest? In other words, there's a. um, Most people are divorced from the ultimate goal, which is the one we're going to enjoy forever and ever in heaven, the ultimate blessing. Most people are divorced from it because the if statement has always failed. If you abide in me, if you um, keep my commandments, if you obey, All three things are from Holy Scripture, right? Then you get the blessing. The problem is, most people do not fulfill the conditions first. And when that happens, they're frustrated. And so the kingdom of darkness comes in and says, you see, you're not getting the love you're after, so I will put put a substitute, a counterfeit in there for you. Because you're so obstinate and arrogant and stubborn, you're never going to change your ways. So instead of you changing your ways and getting the real thing, why don't you keep your ways? I'll encourage you along the way. Do, you know, I'll get a bunch of you idiots together, and you can pat each other on the back. And then I'll insert counterfeit love. I'll, just, I'll get these moronic people to write a bunch of romance novels to fool you into thinking this is what heavenly love looks like. Fabio, or, I don't know, you know what I'm getting at, right? some counterfeit or something on some social network or some, some friend from high school that just happened to, you know, parachute into your life at just the right time because you're desperately looking for love. But yet God's saying, wait a minute, you can have it. There's a big if statement, but you see, you're too arrogant and stubborn and impatient. I've been trying to give you this for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Waiting for you. But you don't want it. Because you don't want to obey. So again, what's the end goal? The greatest blessing of all? Love. Love. To be loved. To love God and to love others. That's to to be in this. I just described the sphere of love. I could have put a big circle on there and just put love in there. But not everybody's, you know, graphically oriented like I am. But that's the idea. Abide in love, the sphere of love. That's the greatest blessing of all. To be smack dab in the middle of it. And don't you get glimpses of it from time to time in your own life? Don't you enjoy those times when you just know for a fact that you are loved? Don't you just love it when you turn around and everyone, like Paul said at the end of his ministry, everybody's deserted me. You ever have moments like that where even your own spouse, even the people, that your kids, your mother, your father, they abandon you. You get knocked in. Everybody's abandoned you. But you have him. And you know it. And you lift it up. That's the great blessing. Because you've just become untouchable in that moment. Everything you've ever wanted, everything you've ever desired, longed for, is in that moment because you know that you're loved. You're in the sphere of love. And when you're in that sphere, all you really want to do is reach out to others and love them too, isn't it? You want to reach across every chasm in your life at that moment in time and just pour it out. Remember uo, it, it pours in and it pours, it overflows. When you understand this blessing, when you have this blessing, that's why I believe people that have gone through this process and are over here now for the predominant part of their lives, they're the ones who serve the most, even in a ministry. And it's young and old. The ones who understand what love is. The ones who are so in love with Jesus Christ that it overflows onto the laps of others. Those are the people you see serving. The ones who don't, they're still too immature. They're over here. They're stuck. They're still stuck. And those are the ones I pray for to get unstuck because I want them to be blessed. And in God's economy, He pours in all the love. It overflows. It overflows on these people. And around and around it goes. The greatest blessing of all, love. To be loved. To love God and to love others. God went so far as to be pleased to crush his own son so that we might experience this love firsthand. And if we look at this objectively, objectively, We know that his own integrity demanded a payment for sin. If we look at this objectively, the fact that he was pleased to crush his only son so that we might experience his love firsthand, if we look at it objectively. We know that his own integrity demanded a payment for sin. His desire to have us with him forever and ever was always there. But there was a roadblock, so to speak. Sin. In other words, his own integrity placed a conditional statement before him, the holy God of the universe. If you think of it theologically, there was a tension there. I want them with me, but there's a sin issue. I want them with me, but there's a sin issue. And so there was even a quote-unquote tension in the Godhead, so to speak. His own integrity placed a conditional statement then before Him, the Holy God of the universe. And I tread lightly here, as you can see, because I don't want to misrepresent my Lord. I'm just trying to teach you something here. I hope you see the point the Spirit's making that God had a choice that looked a bit like the following. If, as a conditional statement, if, he was willing to sacrifice his only begotten son. And if said son was willing to die willingly on his cross to accomplish his father's will, then we all would have a way back to him, to reconciliation, that is. Two if statements. If he was willing to sacrifice his son, if his son was willing to go to his cross, then you and I would have a way back to Him, and His integrity would be satisfied. And I just wonder how many people stop and ponder such things before they rattle off a few murmurs, a few objections in their souls about conditional blessings. I want all the blessings right now. I'm at church, ain't I? I dressed my Sunday best. Shouldn't that that be enough? Not really, no. It's not enough. I wonder how many people stop and ponder the fact that God put himself under his own conditions so that he could love you. So that you could experience love. I wonder how many people do that before they murmur about the commands and the demands that God has laid out for us in the Bible. The things we're to obey, the things that lead us to said love. I wonder how many people think about God and what He did. Obviously, God considers it a blessing to have His children with Him for all of eternity, even for Himself, and I speak in human terms again, of course maybe this perspective will help some of you see that our God is a God of integrity, holding even himself to divine standards of doing. He holds even himself to divine standards of doing. Read Philippians 2 when you go home. God became man. That's doing in a way that you, my friends, will never even fully fathom. Ever. God became in the likeness of man. Do you know what that would be like? You could take the worst possible creature you could think about right now, and suppose you got transformed right now into that thing, and it still wouldn't compare. It wouldn't even come close how degrading it would be for the holy God of the universe to end up on a cross so that you and I might be reconciled to Him. But out of integrity, out of holding Himself accountable to His own integrity, that's exactly what He did. Because you know what? Our God, our Lord and Savior is a doer. A doer. Right? This is what we get nowadays in Christianity proper. A bunch of gum flapping idiots. A bunch of people who present themselves, no offense if you're dressed up this morning, in their Sunday best, and they're nothing more than empty tombs. Not you though. Huh? Well, some of you are like, oh, I think he's talking about us. It's just a perspective. The Spirit just wants you to understand that, you know, God's not this oppressive being that says, do as I say, but not as I do. Uh uh-uh. uh. God is a doer in ways you can't even, you don't even come close to doing. God lowered himself in ways that we can't even fathom. Why? Because of love. You get it? We do. Remember the old saying? I always bring this up, I say it. My own quip, so to speak, but love can't help but express itself. True love. Remember, Paris Parasuo, "Oh, that just that situation when you're so overcome by love, it can't be contained." I mean, who's who's completely overcome by love and then goes sits in a corner and stares at a wall? No. You. What do you do? You. You all of a sudden you, you're charged up. You want to do for other people. You're charged up in your own way. I'm not saying you go out and become, you know, something you're not supposed to be. But you now got motivation. Real motivation, not religious motivation, like, you know, if I do this then I get that. Real motivation, out of love. Who cares about the end goal? Who cares what God, I mean, you don't know what it is anyways, because you don't know His plans. You You may do unbelievable things your whole life, and on faith alone, read Hebrews 11. Remember, they didn't even get the promises. You may do amazing things your whole life and never get what you think are the promises. And that's perfectly fine. Because you don't care. You're only interested in expressing said love. Because that's what maturity looks like in the faith. You abide in it. You swim in it. You don't even care anymore. You say, well, I just love. There's love. Love. And you're untouchable at that point. But back to the point. Maybe this perspective will help some of you see that our God is a God of integrity, holding even Himself to divine standards of doing. So we have to think about such things when we read Jesus' words, for He was always filled with the Spirit of God. Go to John 15, verse 7. John 15, verse 7. It's really just so simple. Life really is simple. You know, I mean, the flesh likes to complicate it and the world likes to complicate it, but if you net, net it all out, it's actually very simple. The greatest, thing, the greatest things in life always are somehow related to love. And I don't mean that romance stuff. This kind of love. John fifteen seven. If, conditional statement, of course, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Remember, that sounds reminiscent, doesn't it? You prove to be my disciples, how? When you show love for one another. Remember that? That's elsewhere. That's from Jesus. Just as the Father has loved me, I I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If, conditional statement, you keep my commandments, that is a direct statement about obedience, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Cause effect. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. He did that perfectly. Perfect prototype. These things I have spoken to you so that, now the resultant blessing is in view, the ultimate one, or at least within the realm of the ultimate one, my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Nothing greater to enjoy, I guess, than being in love with the God of the universe and that is what fullness looks like so what we see up here on the board is this our joy even is conditional joy in time for a believer is conditioned upon obedience I didn't say that Jesus Christ said that John fifteen seven to 11 16 24 joy in time for a believer is conditioned upon obedience if you are disobedient, you lose joy. If you're obedient, you get joy. Any questions? I don't think so. What's the problem? Nobody wants to obey. Especially not in America. we we way, way too many distractions in America. Go to John 16, 24. John 16, 24. John 16, 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive, so that cause, effect, and view, your joy may be made full. That's all he's looking for. Bide in my love, obey me, and your joy may be made full. And I was thinking about this. I think maybe a lot of Christians don't understand the conditional nature of blessings. They just don't. They don't understand the conditional nature of blessings. They read the Bible, they hear that God loves them, Jesus loves them, and they expect to abide in His love but never obey. And so they get really wise. Oh, well all I have to do is obey and then I get said blessings, right? No, because God sees the heart. There's got to be proper motivation to obey when you're properly motivated, when the root system for obedience is there, then you get the blessing. So you can't be a religious jackass either. Because there were a lot of Pharisees that did that. And there's a reason why those people are accounted for in the Bible and Jesus Christ called them whitewashed tombs. So you can't get, you know, you can't get all creative like you do at work. Some of you are solution, problem solvers too. Oh, the customer's moaning and groaning and so I got to do this thing and I'll keep them happy. Yeah, but your attitude was terrible. And God sees the heart. So did you really do that thing as under the Lord? Or did you just do it just so you get your next raise? Do you know what I'm getting at? What did you do it for? What were you motivated for? Because God deals with the heart. Again, I think a lot of Christians maybe don't understand the conditional nature of blessings. And you you know how you can tell... So there's a litmus test. Um, because we all sin, right? I'm not, talking about uni- I'm not talking about, oh crap, you know, I fell off, I, you know, I did this, I've, I know I shouldn't be doing this thing, I fell off the wagon yesterday, I'm, I'm, not, I'm back on the way. I didn't do, I, you know, I, I just, I lied, I cheated, I did this, I did whatever it was. I'm not talking about individual sinning. I'm not talking about moments of weakness. What about the conditional nature of blessings don't Christians seem to understand? And why do I suggest that they don't? Because the proof is in their lifestyles. Ah, oh, here we go. I'm like, oh, I hate when we talk about lifestyles. The proof is in their lifestyle. And please notice that I said lifestyles, not merely sinning, not just individual moments of sinning. Because a lot of people like to focus on that stuff more than the lifestyle. Because you can kind of like say, well, I repent from this sin, and I do feel convicted, and I feel bad, and, you know, God and I are good with it. Okay. But what about your lifestyle? What about it? Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's That's like, you know, holy ground, my friend. We don't talk about my lifestyle. We talk about individual sins, and I've already admitted that I'm a sinner. So me and God are cool. Ah, okay, but there's a bigger sin than that. It has everything to do with your lifestyle. So I need you to concentrate on this fine Sunday morning. Everybody go with this. Do it! Everybody do it! Thank you. Man, you look queer. I can't believe you did it. I'm just kidding. I have to do all the stuff I have to do. Seriously. Share the wealth. So the proof is in their lifestyles. And I'm not, I want you to elevate your thinking now in your own life. Lifestyle. Not just you saying, I know that I sin. I can point them out to you. I'm good with God on that thing. Okay, cool. But what about your lifestyle? What about that one overarching thing that seems to produce those sins over and over and over and over again? What about that thing? What about the fact that you know exactly what I'm talking about right now? And some of you are going like this. It's like a wine press. Oh, my God. This is horrible. Because a lot of people play games. And they punt to individual sins. And they're able to get on with their life because they can get beyond that sin, you see. Oh, well, I confessed it with God, and God and I are cool on it, and, you know, Jesus died on the cross for it, and it's all good. But what about your lifestyle? So, concentrate. Let's talk about this. A lifestyle may not be sinful by itself. That's true. A lifestyle may not be sinful by itself. For example, if you don't have a certain weakness in an area of your life, let's say, then you may partake in just about any circumstance where a temptation exists. So in other words, you don't have a weakness in that area, you're not tempted, so it's not really a problem. However, if you are weak in a certain area and you architect a lifestyle, you architect a lifestyle, which means you put together a lifestyle that consistently places you in the crosshairs of temptation, then you are sinning. You say, I didn't sin yet, though. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did, my friend. You architected a lifestyle that was evil. But I didn't sin you. Oh, yes, you did. Because you know better than to put yourself in a situation where you're not going to be able to come out on top, where temptation is going to bring you straight down to where it has 150 times yesterday. So, if you're weak in a certain area of your life and you architect a lifestyle that consistently places you in the crosshairs of temptation, you are sinning. You are living in sin. Why is this sin? Because you already know that something's not good for you. Or maybe even others. And every good gift is from above. you already know that it's not good for you to be in that situation. Certainly not to architect a lifestyle that produces it. In other words, if you are knowingly premeditating a lifestyle that ultimately takes you away from your first love, then even though the lifestyle at face value isn't sinful... Because it may not take someone stronger than you in that area away from your first love. Even though the lifestyle itself isn't sinful, just you knowing that it results in sin due to weaknesses in yourself, well, my friends, that is a sin. That's the whopper. That's the whopper. That if I was, as your shepherd, and don't be offended, if I was a betting man, the vast majority of you still haven't conquered yet. That's the whopper. Because what you can do when you're having your little conversations and you're ridiculous justifying your lifestyle, you say, but there's nothing wrong with this lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with being a uh, a brewmaster. No, I don't get offended. Anybody who's a brewmaster or knows a brewmaster. This has nothing to do with anybody that I even know. It is if you're an alcoholic. And every time you go to work, you you know, (laughs) a little more for Santa Claus, man. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm getting at? It is. It's not for the guy who doesn't have a drinking problem, but it is for you because you're going to get drunk and go be ridiculous with your family after. So we like to play this game and we like to preserve and protect the biggest sin of all, which is the lifestyle that we've architected. Because we get to, we get to fall back on and say, but it's not sinful. There's no, I haven't sinned. Yes, you have. Because you know better. So we'll prove it. Oh, okay. James 4.17. On the board. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's a what? A sin. So if you know it's not the right thing to do because you have a weakness, then it's a sin. And that's the whopper. I'm telling you, my friends, if you get beyond it, you're doing very well at that point. If you can get beyond that final frontier, so to speak, which is your lifestyle, then you've kind of gotten to what we might call theologically closer to maturity. But if you keep on making those excuses, if you just say, I'm good, you know, I know I sin. I sin. I, you know, I'm just a sinner. I'm just going to keep on sinning. And I do confess it to God. Well, why don't you confess this one then and see what he has to say about this one, this lifestyle one, this thing that you've premeditated and architected, this thing that puts you in a position where you keep on sinning. And maybe in your sin you make others sin and make others stumble because there's always a ripple effect. You know that's not good. Hmm, Uh, this is what Paul was getting at. Go to Romans 14, 14. Romans 14, 14. See, some of you say, yeah, but there's nothing wrong. My my work, my job, my home life, my romantic life. That's another one that's just killing me. My romantic life. There's nothing wrong with me hanging around with this, this guy or this girl. Yes, there is. Because you're having lustful thoughts 24-7 about said guy or girl. So why are you in a hotel room with them? Why are you in their base, in your basement alone with them? Why would you do this thing? I didn't sin. I got to have friends, you know. Do you? What if you're a pervert? Seriously, what if you're a pervert? And you know your tendency is to uh, hit on them your tendency is to seduce them what if that's you do you really think you should be in a hotel room with them really but i didn't sin nothing happened yes it did do you understand what i'm saying why would you enable someone why would you give why would you keep on enabling someone you love when you know they're going to take the money and go buy drugs. There's nothing wrong with giving my son or my daughter or my uncle, my, my mother, my father money. I want, to, I want them to be able to eat. But they're not going to eat. And you know it. You see what I'm getting at? These are lifestyle issues. This is the whopper. And this is the one nobody wants to talk about. Because you know why? It's crippling to the human flesh. Crippling. The human flesh needs an economy to function in. And for as long as you give it and you you architect an economy where it can survive, it will do so and it will thrive. Romans 14, 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So now we're talking about someone's conscience. That's why I keep using the term, you know better. That's That's your conscience convicting you right now. You know better. But if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. You what you mean I got you mean I got punted, I got ejected out of the sphere of love? Yep. Yep. You lose the conditional statement, you see? You're no longer functioning in love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. The question, obvious question in context, is anything wrong with eating food? Jeez, I hope not. Some of like, I don't, I don't know. Well, let me ask you a question. What if you went to India right now and started eating some beef in front of a crowd of Hindus that you were trying to evangelize? Just Talk about Jesus. Do you think maybe Hindus hold cows sacred? That's the background. They don't eat cows. They, matter of fact, they walk around the streets. It's, it's pretty bad, but whatever. Do you think it might make some of them stumble? And then how's your evangelism going to go after that? Anything wrong with eating cow? No. Good old burger. Hey, I'm good. But here is if you're in, in a Hindu company that you're trying to evangelize. but there's nothing wrong. I know. But if your lifestyle is to go over there as a missionary, eat hamburgers in front of them, there's a problem. But I like hamburgers and it's good for me. Yeah, you're still a self-absorbed jackass who doesn't operate in love, whose root system of obedience stinks. Oh. You see, your lifestyle you're choosing to premeditate it, and architect it, and even maintain it, and feed it like a little gerbil. Is a sin. Why? James four seventeen. Is it right to feed something ungodly, and give it life? Nope. To propagate something ungodly? No, it is not. So what is it? When you know the right thing to do? Oh, I'm missing. Yeah, it's a sin. Right? It's the whopper. Let me help you. Up here on the board. Lifestyle versus sin. Too many people try to justify their ungodly lifestyles by focusing on a benign lifestyle instead of the consistent sin it produces. Nothing wrong with what I do. I did nothing wrong. Yes, you did. You architected something that produces sin, and you know it. Too many people try to justify their ungodly lifestyles by focusing on a benign lifestyle instead of the consistent sin it produces. If you choose to live an evil lifestyle, it is your choice that stands out as sin, not necessarily the lifestyle, for it may be fine for someone else, like I said with the brewmaster guy or whoever. might be fine for somebody else, but if you've got, if you're gonna consistently sin, and you know that's not, that sin's bad, and it's not good for you to be stuck sinning like that, romance. Stop dating. If you're either courting, and that's it. Do I need to really teach that again? Stop dating, and stop saying it's okay, because, you know, we don't have any impure thoughts. Really. You don't have any impure thoughts. Really. Stop it, people, with the garbage. And then calling it, it's okay. It's not okay. Because anything that produces a lifestyle that produces sin is lust for another person. It's not your spouse's sin, yes or no? Absolutely it is. If it's producing that thing, what the hell are you doing? And how are you justifying it? Those are the kind, and I'm not picking on people who are doing that stuff. Everybody's got their own stuff to deal with. I'm not judging anybody here. But those are the whoppers, you see? Those are the whoppers. That's how people get married that shouldn't even be married, that are still married to their former spouse, technically. That's how people do all kinds of crazy things that are contrary to God's will. And they say, why, why am I 60 years old and still miserable? I'm teaching it right now because there's a cause and effect. And it's real. And God is never mocked. So don't look at the bald guy and say, I don't like him very much today. Too bad. I'm God's chosen mouthpiece, my friends. Like it or lump it. You only hate me because my shirt's awesome. Where did that even come from? I have no idea. I just had to make you guys laugh because you look like you got a (laughs) snap. Leo looks like he's gonna needs to use the bathroom. (laughs) Sorry, Leo. You know what I'm saying? Like it's 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 the the tension is palpable sometimes. Mm -hmm. Why? If a man comes before you and speaks the truth from holy scripture, and it gets this tight in here, you tell me what the problem is. You tell me what the problem is. Because it's not mine. Honestly, it's not mine. The reason there's any tension in your soul at any point this morning so far, you a problem. Because the truth does that. It just uncovers the truth about things. So, to bring this full circle back to our primary course of study, the truth is that we lose blessings when we choose to focus our attention and often our affections on someone or something other than our first love, Jesus Christ. That's the truth. We lose blessings when we're, when we're diverted, when we're not following and obeying His commands. Jesus Christ said it very clearly. Very clearly. Follow my commands. As I alluded to earlier, God's integrity is a double-edged sword cutting cleanly in both directions, whether blessings or curses. Therefore, appear on the board... Jesus demands, this came out all the way back from Tuesday, I think. Jesus demands that we are his first love, or there will be discipline. He demands it, or there will be discipline. i got to pick a spot to close. We're going to have a special uh, communion service this morning. Revelation 2, 4 to 5. Michael's like, it's not really special, it's just a communion service. <laughs> special delivery, let's put it that way. But I, it's Michael, okay? You guys, jeez, people are what's he talking about? Drink another coffee. <laughs> Revelation 2, 4-5, to five, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Don't get familiar with that, please. Don't go blah, blah, blah. This is serious. He says, I know your deeds. And what I see is that you've left your first love. How would he say that? Lifestyle. What was going on in this church? When he was writing these churches, he he does as a good father would do. He's writing about trends. It's not one particular thing. It's about a trend. Your eyes have diverted. You've left your first love. I see what's going on. You need to come back. You need to repent. Repent. You see? Some of your lifestyles have slowly done this. Right? What is it? What's over here attracting you like a magnet? Is it romance? Is it money? Is it prestige? What is it? Something has gotten your lifestyle to veer off. And he's saying, repent. And that's what he's saying. Because you might say to yourself, but I'm over here on this lifestyle and I'm not sinning. I haven't, I don't know of any. Yes, you have. Because you're supposed to be going true north and you're going north, northwest. And you know it. And you're lying to yourself and you're lying to everyone else who you might be involved with in this little charade. And you might even be surrounded by people that don't know what I've taught this morning. Beware. I talked about that last Sunday. Beware who you hang with. Do they even know the Bible? Do they? These people that are encouraging you to continue off north, who have no problem even encouraging you off north, do they know the truth in the Bible? Do they? Or is it you that knows the truth? Therefore, where you take encouragement from. Jesus demands that we are his first love. Verse 4 up here on the board. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. You see it's plural. Do the deeds. Lifestyle, right? What's, he, what's, what's between the crosshairs here? Lifestyle. Do the deeds. Plural. He doesn't even call it one particular sin because the sin is not the issue. It's the lifestyle that's the issue. It's the direction that's the issue. Not the individual sins that you can go, God knows I sinned and I repented and you know I confessed my sin. God knows I sinned and I repented and I named it and this whole thing. Yeah, it's great. No, that's really good. That's really good. But what about the direction of your life? What about the choices that you've made consistently as a function of an architected lifestyle? Do you understand? Because that thing itself, if it's not true north, is sin. And that's what he's getting at here. You left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deed you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And when he's talking to a church, I don't have, I'm out of time here, but when he's talking to a church, he's talking about a corporate entity. And he says, you know what? I'm going to crash this place down. Your entire church is going in the wrong direction. You've all lost your first love. Your past is a nut job. Someone just laughed. That's crazy. I don't know what to think about that. Your past is a nut job, right? And you're going in the wrong direction. I'm only going to let it go on for so long. You see, right now, whether you believe it or not, I'm your best friend. I'm the one in your grill. In your, old people, that's your face. I'm in your face, right? (laughs) Somebody be like, a Buick? Oldsmobile? <laughs> Does that have like a pretty emblem? No, no. I'm your best friend right now. I'm the one who keeps pulling the yoke back, right? Saying, let's get over here. As a church, let's go. We're a corporate body. We're a lampstand. We're supposed to have the gospel up top. What are we doing? What are you doing? We're leaving the first our first love. Happens like almost every summer. And he's like, la, 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 you know, spring is in the air and romance and, oh, man, I met someone online. Or, you know, I'm, uh, I don't know, I opened up a new, I don't know, I got a new hairdresser. I've been, you know, inve- you know, I've been, um, uh, what do you call it, sampling or, uh, what's the right word? <laughs> Playing around with my hair, what's the right word? I've been, uh, uh You know what I'm saying? You know, Yeah, it's your lifestyle. It's your lifestyle. And that's what he's basically saying. Beware. He's pulling us back. I'm your friend right now. Some of you are hating on me right now. I can see it in your eyes. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. You shouldn't be hating me. You should be hating the people who are encouraging you behind the scenes, behind the Lord's back. Those that have no love for Christ, say they do, maybe, I don't know, have no real love for Christ, have no Holy Scripture in their soul, and they're encouraging this lifestyle. Don't hate me. If you're going to hate anything, hate the ungodliness that exists outside of these four walls. Certain ungodliness that might exist in your life. Or you can just hate me and obey, I don't care. As long as you obey from a good root system. I don't care if you like me or hate me. I mean, it's better if you like me because my job's easier. But if you don't, what am I going to do? Stand in line? You understand what the Spirit's saying here? I hope so. All right, gentlemen, get ready for the uh, for communion service. I'm going to invite Michael Pavia up. And he's going to lead us in service. I apologize about the music. Probably can't play it because the uh, recording device or the amplification device is toast. You
1: morning. I want to uh, obviously thank Pastor for the uh, opportunity, the honor, and the privilege of standing behind his pulpit. And uh, I do disagree with him. I think this is a special communion because I'm doing it and I showered and I'm dressed up. <laughs> Michelle will tell you that's a big deal. Um, and I also did feel a little convicted in the message. Great message, I guess. We won't be eating hamburgers in India. So change that up, Scotty. Um, We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, which is calling into remembrance what He did for us on the cross, the most important thing that has ever happened. And it's a good reminder to go along with the the message this morning about everything that God did for us. It was God who did all the work on our behalf. He's the one who paid the price for all of our sins. He's the one who solved the problem for us, a horrible, unspeakable death just for you and just for me. Let's turn to Genesis 22.8, where we've been a lot this week. And we'll start there. <clears throat> Genesis 22.8, we've been there several times this week. First book in the Bible is where it all starts, from the foundation of the world. Genesis two eight. and Abraham said, God will provide for himself. God is the one who did all the work. This is a very important point showing how an all-powerful and all-sufficient God He is. How faithful He is, how powerful He is, and how loving He is. He provided for all of us on the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago. And one point I really want to stress is that Jesus Christ obviously is God. We all know that. We've been well taught here. But if Jesus Christ isn't God, and obviously He is, but if Jesus Christ isn't God then God didn't provide. If the Lord Jesus Christ isn't God, then what did the cross really cost God? If God just created another creature like he can do like that and sent someone else to do it, it didn't cost God anything. And also, he himself didn't provide. If the Lord Jesus Christ is just another created creature, however, we know that God is exactly who he says he is. We know that God himself came down from heaven, took on the form of a man, this disgusting flesh, was tempted in all areas yet without sin, as Hebrews uh, 4.15 says, and died for all of us on behalf of everyone once and for all on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. The Lord Jesus Christ has many, many titles. Emmanuel is just one of his titles, which means God's with us. We all know John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. If you'll all turn to Isaiah 9.6 right now, going back to what Pastor said in the message, you don't look at the Old Testament one way and the New Testament a different way. It's all one Bible. It's all the Word, which is all God. Isaiah 9:6 For a child will be born to us a son will be given to us and the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god eternal father prince of peace Let's turn to Isaiah 43:11 Isaiah forty three eleven I even I am the Lord, and there is no savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange god among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord God, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. Let us turn to Acts twenty twenty eight. twenty twenty eight be on God for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. obviously Jesus Christ has blood and he's the one who purchased the church because he is God let's turn to revelation 117 <clears throat> Revelation one seventeen and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, "Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This also matches up perfectly with isaiah forty four six which we didn't go to, but isaiah forty four six if you want to go to afterwards, it says, "I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me, which is exactly what Revelation says. And then you just look to the next page, Revelations two A, I'm sorry, two eight, the B part. I am the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. And then finally let's go to Revelation twenty two, thirteen. Revelation 22:13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It is very clear throughout the entire Bible that it is our Savior who died for us. It was Jesus Christ. It was God in the flesh. It was not a cheap death. It wasn't a small thing. It cost Him everything, and He gladly endured it for you and for myself. Jesus Christ is God. He always was God. He always will be God, and He loved you enough to go through all He went. And I have this written in my notes as Pastor talked about it earlier today. We can't even begin to understand what it was like for a holy God who always existed eternally with no beginning to stop being whatever essence he was and to take on the form of a flesh. Still being 100% God, but to become a man is mind-blowing. It's something we'll never, ever understand in all of eternity. I don't think we'll ever come to know what he really did for us. But he did it all because of love. That's who God is. That's what he is. And love does. Love acts. Love hung on the cross. Jesus Christ is the only true God. Life is all about Him. Unfortunately, we're all, every single one of us, are very good at making life about ourselves. It's very easy to do, especially in America, with all the blessings we have. But that's not what life is. Life is about the Lord Jesus Christ and following what God wants us to do for each and every single one of us, individually and collectively as a church. And as we call into remembrance His death, it's one of the most important things we do because we focus on the greatest thing that's ever happened, the cross, and we by doing this we proclaim that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. Jesus Christ doesn't lie. When you talk to some people in cults, you know, whether it's Jehovah's Witness or whatever it is, they'll say, Oh yeah, Jesus was a good person. And I'll ask, did he ever lie? And they'll say, No. Okay, well, if he never lied, he constantly says he's God. I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And I just gave you a bunch of other scriptures that God purchased the, the church with his own blood. He's the beginning and the end. There is no Savior besides him. So as we turn to 1 Corinthians 11:23 to celebrate the only, only one who matters and the most important thing that has ever happened. Just call into your remembrance all that the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, even though we really don't grasp all of it. The sacrifice He made in satisfying God the Father once and for all, so that everyone who comes to Him will have eternal life. It is the most amazing thing that has or will ever happened, and it's a privilege to call it into memory. So as we look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat the bread. Verse 25, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he returns in honor of our savior let's drink the cup let's pray father we love you so much we're so eternally grateful for all you've done for us We have a hard time understanding all you did for us and we probably will never know but that which you have revealed to us that which we do understand we are certainly in awe of you of your faithfulness of your amazing love we can't begin to thank you enough but we try our whole lives are a testimony to how faithful you are we are so eternally grateful for everything you did we thank you for this life and we thank you even more for the next life we can't wait to see you face to face my father but in the meantime We thank you for causing us to focus on you. We thank you for causing us to bring you glory. We thank you for causing us to do your will in spite of us, my Father. We thank you for your faithfulness in spite of our lack of faithfulness. We thank you for your incredible love and mercy and grace, which don't make any sense. My Father, we thank you for you. We thank you for God, the Holy Spirit. We thank you for God, the Son, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for all that you are, and we thank you for all that you are not. May you have mercy and Continue to bless all of us, and this church, and our pastor, and everyone here, and all your children throughout the world. For your glory, according to your will, we pray all this. In the name of our precious Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ, God forever, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world.